for Debbie and I, our first grandchild was born just over eight months ago. And our second grandchild is due to be born at the beginning part of May. And for the first one, and I absolutely know for the second one as well, immediately when they're born, the debate will begin. Who do they look like? And all the family and the friends and the Instagram people and the Facebook people will chime in. And they'll say, you know, I think Titus looks like his mother, Aaron. No, no, I think he looks more like his dad, James. Or I think he looks, he has overtones of his grandfather, Noel, or of his grandmother, Debbie. And I know absolutely that when Sean and Tabea have their kid in May, that this will happen again. And as this is all raging on and they're asking me, I typically sit there with this blank look on my face because I never know who they look like. And so what I usually say is I think they look exactly precisely like themselves. It's a natural, normal discussion, right? It's kind of fun. This past week, I saw a picture of my daughter and her son pop up on social media. And it made me think of this question. Who do you look like? But when I ask that question, I'm not talking about your physical appearance. Because today we're going to talk about what it means to look alike. Look alike. So if you have your Bible or your device, your hard copy or your device, turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're continuing. I think we're on our sixth message of 11 as we move expositionally through the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 beginning in verse 28 and 29, and then the first 10 verses of chapter 3. And as I, as I read this to you, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. And now, dear children, John writes, continue in him, so that when Jesus appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the father lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. 
He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not know what is what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So you recall that we said earlier in this series that when John inspired by the spirit of God is writing this, he's 80 plus years of age. He's now been walking with Jesus since he's probably in his early 20s. So approximately 60 years or so. He has been transformed. We talked about this earlier in the series that when he was a young man, he was arrogant. He was uh, passionate and ambitious and not in a good way. He was kind of cold hearted and he was self-centered. But Jesus uh, calls him to join the team. Jesus changes him. And over time, the spirit of God has transformed this guy into a person that reflects the Lord Jesus. He's a grandfather type person now. And as he speaks all through the book, and we've been noting this basically every week, he says over and over and over again, something. Why is that? Because he has observed that they're forgetting this and he knows what we're going to be like in the future. And he's saying, don't forget this. Don't let this slide by into the background. And so four times in these 12 verses, he either directly or indirectly says the thing that he's been saying all through this series. He says, dear children. Then he says, children of God. Then he says, dear friends. And then again, a second time, he says, dear children in these 12 verses. And what he's saying by this is he's saying, remember, do not forget that God loves you. I love you. I'm in your corner. I'm cheering for you. God, like Dylan said earlier, God has your best interests in in mind. You are the dear children. Don't ever forget that. Now, at this point in the book, there's a bit of a shift. And I understand that the the main focuses shift back and forth a little bit. But there's maybe a little bit more of a partial transition here in verses 28 and 29 at the latter part of chapter 2. The first couple of chapters, in a primary sense, have been warning them about these false teachers that are out there. And last week, as we were looking, John brings out the big guns. And he attacks very directly those false teachers. But now there's a shift in this passage. And again, it goes back and forth a bit. But there's a shift in this part of the passage to the children of God themselves. And he's saying to us in this passage, the real Jesus wants what's best for you. Now that you're in Christ in a growing way, who are you starting to look like? And John is saying, I call you to look alike. 
a lookalike with Jesus. And by his spirit, not unlike what he has done in my life, John is saying, I'm not perfect, but not unlike what he's done in my life, I'm calling on you to let Jesus take you on that journey of ongoing transformation. And so in verse 28, he says, I got an FYI for you right here, a four-year information, a reminder moment. And he talks about the second coming of Christ. And he uses the word at the end of verse 28, coming. This is the Greek word parousia. It only occurs one time in the book of John. It never occurs in the gospel of John, which John, as Jesus' best friend, wrote about the life of Jesus. But it's a word that's consistent with all the inspired New Testament writers in the 27 books of the New Testament. And it's a technical term, this Greek term, for the second coming of his Christ. And he is saying, Jesus is returning one day. The parousia is coming. And we know that um, if you're aware of the church calendar at all, that very soon we're on the precipice of heading, heading into what's called the season of Lent. These are the days leading up to the time when Christ would go up to Jerusalem, which leads us into the Passion Week the last week when he triumphantly enters into Jerusalem, even though everybody's telling him, don't go, we're worried about your safety. And he knows exactly what's going to happen, but he goes anyway. We know the story that Jesus is in the garden. He's asking the father, is there any other way? And then he goes, not my will, but your will be done. Then he's betrayed by one of his leadership team. He's falsely accused. They pay people off. They conspire against him. They take him through a series of mock trials that are political in their orientation. And he dies on the cross for you and for me. He arises from the dead three days later. He then spends the next 40 days hanging out with 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. People who laid everything in life on the line that lost their lives because of their belief and their knowledge and the certainty of the resurrection of Christ. All they had to say is, no, it didn't happen. And walk. But instead they say, no, we saw this. We, we, we touched him. He, he rose from the dead. And nothing will ever change that. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, after 40 days, he says to the, the disciples, remember how in the back of the book of Luke, I told you to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you and fill you and empower you. Keep waiting for that. And then you're going to go out and be my witnesses all over the world, beginning locally and moving out from there. And then he ascends in that chapter to sit at the right hand of the father. And in verse 11 there, there's a promise that one day he will come back in similar fashion. And John is saying when he comes back, at some point there will be an accounting of our relationship with him or lack thereof. And for those that have never acknowledged him, that have never acknowledged and owned their sin, that have never come to grips with the fact that they're hopelessly lost and separated from God, that have never chosen and willingly chose not to accept Jesus' gift of salvation and grace, which is a free gift, which is un 
deserved, uh, unearned, unmerited, all those words. Never surrendered their life to him. Those that have what would be called a deficit of faith. They've then chosen a Christless eternity in hell. But for those of us, John says, that have accepted Christ, have accepted his forgiveness, have said, have said, you know, would you apply your grace in my life? I surrender my life to you. I receive you as Lord, whose names were told in the book of Revelation chapter 20 are written then in the book of life. There's, there's heaven, there's eternal life with Jesus, but independent and subsequent to that. So this is not speaking about salvation. Subsequent to that, we are told that each of us will give an accounting of how we have come to look alike Jesus. And this is what he's talking about here in verses 28 and 29. And so when I read those verses, I think of the expression, have you ever been caught red handed doing something wrong? We all have, right? I certainly have. And he's saying that, that a life surrendered to Jesus begins to change. There's this pursuit of holiness that when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we do this in an ongoing way, We're growing more and more like Christ. And John is warning them, we don't want to get caught red-handed and ashamed when Jesus returns suddenly because we're willfully, habitually doing things we know we shouldn't. And there'll be no distinct heads up about when he's coming. You're not going to get a two-week warning. You're not going to get a 24-hour warning. It's just... At one time, God the Father is going to say to Jesus, big announcement, it's happening right now. Right now. The scripture says the only one who knows when he's coming back is God the Father. And then Jesus will instantly come. And John is saying, are you ready for that moment? Have you give your life to Christ? There's a number of us here today or that are watching online that have not. He's saying, don't delay in this. Today's the day. Jesus desperately wants to have a relationship with you. Don't put it off. But he's also saying, if you are a follower of Christ already, is there anything right now that you are doing that you would be ashamed of if Christ returned right at this moment? And if there is, today is the day, now is the time of confession, now is the time of repentance, now is the time of surrender. Now is the time to say, Spirit of God, would you fill me and change my life? And John is saying, who do you look alike? As he moves into the first three verses then of chapter three, another shift begins to start taking place in the book. And in the first couple of chapters, we've talked about this a number of times, this big emphasis that God is light. 
There is no darkness in him. Everyone in the world, the world's systems, the world's thought patterns would suggest God is in one big circle. God and light, light and darkness rather, all in there. The scripture teaches very clearly, no, no, there's two circles. There's God is light and then there's darkness over here. And in the one circle, there is no darkness. And so he's saying now as the, as we move into chapter, into the heart of chapter three, there's going to be an even bigger emphasis on love. It's not that it wasn't talked about before, but there's going to be an even bigger emphasis on love. And in these 12 verses, Glenn Barker is saying, and I think he worded it so well, he's saying there's, there's righteousness and love are inseparable. Righteousness and love are inseparable. And he's addressing something that is a very significant point in our world right now and in the church world in particular. Because in the church world, in many ways, there's this yawning division between people wanting to emphasize one half of that statement and not the other. And so you'll have people saying things more or less along this line. I'm all about love. And I read about the love of God all the time, and I'm all about love. And so when people do things, particularly people that are in the family of God, that are really unholy, I'm just looking the other way. And because I want to project my understanding of God onto God, I'm guessing that's how God looks at it too. I'm all about love. And what they did, well, I wish they wouldn't, but no big deal. So that's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is we need to come down on them like a hammer. These people have stepped out of bounds. Love is a good thing in theory, but we can't apply that right now because it's hammer time. And John is saying in these verses and all through the book, righteousness and love are inseparable. Righteousness and love are inseparable. And so I think we have to pray and we say, we have to say, Spirit of God, help me understand how to, how to live that out. How to, how to hold this difficult balance of righteousness, of holiness, and love all at the same time. So maybe a good place to start is by addressing or asking the question that verse one seems to ask. Verse one says, how great is the love the father has lavished on us. Can I challenge you to do something? It's a wonderful exercise. I think you could do it today. Get started at least to just take some time with your Bible open in a book, probably write it down. And just prayerfully reflect on this. How has God lavished love on me? How's he lavished love on me? What does it mean to be loved? And I think you'll just be deeply, pleasantly surprised when you ask that question. When I was on sabbatical nearly a year ago now, I spent a lot of time, many, many hours reflecting on that question, being very grateful for that, 
being changed by that. And it, it colors our perception in a good way. But as the verses in this chapter progress, a pattern increasingly begins to emerge. And it's this one. In addition to the love the father has lavished on us, there will be some visible proof that we are followers of Jesus Christ. There will be a growing appreciation for righteousness and holiness. And this will, will be demonstrated, not just talked about, but actually lived out in our life. Because he says in verse 6, you won't keep on sinning if you're a follower of Jesus. And this image that righteousness and love are inseparable is just coming off the page. Now, someone says, well, Scott... And we've, we've asked a couple of these kind of questions in the last couple of weeks. Somebody might say, well, Scott, does this mean then, are you somehow suggesting that I am required subsequent to salvation after I come to faith in Christ to live a perfect, sinless life? Some people call this perfectionism. No more sin, period. You know, I remember... Uh, you know, about a hundred years ago in my licensing exam, this is an exam you take where you do some written examination stuff. And then there's a panel that interview for an hour or two to see if you can get licensed to be a pastor. And so I was tw about 21 years old and they ask you a whole pile of questions, but one of them was, um, what are some of your favorite verses? And so I, I trotted out Colossians 1, 28 and 29. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone perfect in him. To this end, I labor struggling with all his energy, which works so powerfully in me. And, and I remember Dr. Arnold Cook sitting right there and he asked me as we were discussing this a bit he said well are you advocating perfectionism and I said you know I, I answered I don't think I give a great answer but it kind of just boiled down to no Jesus as it says in verse 5 Jesus is the only one without sin not me not us he's the one that came to take our sin away He's the one that paid for our sin in full. The place where there will be no more sin, it says in Revelation 20, is in heaven. In chapter 1, in verse 8 of this book, it says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And in verse 10, it says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And so this principle that you hear me refer to from time to time, and I don't even know who came up with this expression, but it's a great expression, the already and not yet. And so there's this, it almost, yeah, like God looks at us and because of Christ, positionally, we are already seen as being holy and without sin, positionally. And yet we keep on living life. And so it's a present reality and yet it's an ongoing reality too. And so you'll read verses like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And it says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory at are being transformed. 
are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, who co- which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. And so pictured in scripture is this position that we have because of who we are in Christ, but also this idea of progression. When we're filled with the spirit, he empowers us. And he begins to do a remodeling job on us so that we will look alike Jesus. So John is talking, I would suggest more about people or a life that never changes in this passage, not talking about people who struggle because I'll be the first to admit I struggle. And we all struggle. No, he's talking about people who know it's wrong but habitually keep on doing it and then begin to rationalize it and somehow make it seem like it's all right. In fact, it's a good thing for them to do, at least for them. And I remember one time sitting with this lady and uh, she said to me, you know, I I really want to go deeper in my relationship with Christ. I want to advance good desire to have. And so we were talking for a bit and she was making some progress. And, and then at one point the spirit just prompted me to ask her a question and her answer revealed that she was having an affair. And she was very upfront about it. She said, I've been, I've been doing this for some time now. I can't remember how long, but some time now. And it's wonderful. And so I let her kind of talk for a bit. And then I interrupted her and I said, you do realize that God is absolutely clear and there's no ambivalence about this, that what you are doing is a hundred percent wrong, that what you're doing is sinful, that what you're doing is, is habitual sin. And if you might recall your wedding vows, there's a promise or two about that back then. And she said, basically, well, that doesn't apply to me. And she had this elaborate explanation, translation, rationalization, translation, empty excuse, why what God says and what I promised to do in my vows didn't apply to her. And no way on God's green earth would I give, she said, would I give this up because I enjoy it too much. And in fact, I'm right in doing it. And I said to her, well, We can't go another step further because you have completely bought into the lies of the evil one. And until you're willing to say, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to what God has to say about this and allow Jesus to cleanse you and forgive you and change you. There's not another step you can take. We all go, I would never do that. Maybe Corinthians says we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. And so John is saying, who do you look like? And then in the final verses, we're told Satan has been in rebellion, sinning from the beginning and his deep hearted desire because misery does love company is he wishes that we would imitate him. He wishes that we would go down the tubes with him. And he wishes that we would become a law unto ourselves, this lawless nature. 
And so John says, just, just let me warn you about this guy. Don't let him lead you astray. It's absolutely true that he's a defeated foe. But if you've ever in your life had to fight against someone or something that is defeated and they know they've lost and they know they have nothing to lose, those kinds of people, those kinds of subjects or whatever are dangerous. When they fight like they know they've got nothing to lose, they are dangerous. So John is warning the children of God. Because he's saying at times we are vulnerable and at times we can be tempted. Be careful. But here's some good news, he says in verse 8. The good news is this. The Son of God, Jesus, the reason he appeared was to destroy the works, to destroy the devil's work. And I was chatting, I might have even referenced this, but Brent, I was chatting with Brent Trask and he said, you know, words to this effect. He kind of goes, you know, Jesus didn't come to mess up the devil's hair. He didn't come to frustrate the devil. He didn't come to just kind of push him around a little bit. This verse says he came to destroy the works of Satan. And as children of God, we are told not because of our power, but because of the power and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Christ, we have authority. We have power to defeat the evil one. And we can stand against the evil one in Jesus name and ask for help and speak with an authoritative voice against the evil one. You know, a few weeks ago, um, I got a new office computer and there's a company here in town called Nuvex that uh, works with a lot of businesses and it, it does our installations here, like sort of the network stuff. And so they're in there doing stuff on this new computer for me. And uh, one of the things they did was they installed some antivirus software. They have their own custom stuff or whatever. And I got thinking about that a little bit relative to this verse, because I think Satan is not unlike a virus on a computer. He tries to wiggle his way in and infect us and it spreads often hides at first, but then it spreads. If you know anything about computers, those it'll spread and begin to infect the entire system. One entrance Maybe it lies dormant for a little bit or not. Maybe it won't. Maybe it just goes for it. And this passage is saying Jesus is the antivirus. If you know, again, anything about antiviruses, software, it comes in and it searches your whole computer. And it's looking for problems. It's looking for where the viruses are. And it begins to kill the virus. And take the virus out. And then once it's searched your whole computer and done that, it stands protecting the computer. And I thought, this is a beautiful image of what Jesus is like. Because Jesus is the ultimate antivirus against the evil one. And so as you reflect on your life, and most importantly, your life in Christ, what's being produced? Is there any visible proof of you being a follower of Jesus? What does a look alike look alike?